Hi, and welcome to Third Waves. Third is an intersectional publication celebrating culture, heritage, and diversity. On Third Waves, we do the same. I am Rona, stylist, creative director, and founder of Third. I am Daniela. I'm a writer, musician, and producer. On this episode of Third Waves, our discussion will be centered around higher education and the experience of people of color and people from black and minority ethnicities in higher education. We will talk about things we wish we'd have learned at university and some things we wish were different. Joining us on this episode is Karim Samara. He is a multi-instrumentalist, improviser, composer and political organizer. His particular area of interest is in diasporic identity and decolonial possibilities of sound and music, with particular focus on sonic representations of place and time. He is also a member of GARA, Goldsmith Anti-Racist Action, which earlier this year occupied Deptford Town Hall in a four and a half month protest. Okay, so higher education. I thought perhaps we can start by talking about a little bit about our experience at uni and perhaps why we are talking about this today. So yeah. I went to university a long, long time ago now. Not really. <laughs> it feels long enough. Um, but yeah, it if I think back to university, I guess, you know, the typical sort of university experience, it's the first time that you're living kind of away from family, away from parents, independently, in quotation marks. Also, sharing space with people who are like, you don't know, initially. September is the month of people going back into uni, um, starting to study again. So it's it's quite nice to reflect at the beginning of it. Maybe ways that you can like navigate some of those bumps that, that occur for you or, you know, when I reflect back, that occurred for me as well. Yeah, I think um, one thing that we've, we've been talking uh, to each other about and also later you'll hear in our interview with Kareem um, is how short um, a bachelor degree is. I mean, three years really flies by and looking back, I feel like there were things that I wish I'd had known or had been more aware of or attuned to to be able to navigate better. Because university, I feel like, is one of the first times where lots of different people come together, lots of international students from different, very different backgrounds and countries meet each other and you start kind of swirling around in this pool of lots of new ideas, different subjects, lots of different lecturers who come from different places as well. And there are lots of sort of big and and small culture clashes, I would say, on a daily basis as well. There are some things that perhaps should have could have been more like explicitly addressed. I guess we are dancing around the topic that we really want to get onto, which is um, do universities really cater to people with diverse backgrounds and interests? I think the curriculum is trying to spread itself. It's probably a supply and demand thing. Universities have definitely tried to expand what they're 
offering now there is the option for people to do courses which once upon a time felt very like idiosyncratic yeah you know when I was coming out of university I noticed that you could do like a degree in styling not to say that I would have done it but you couldn't Mm. do a degree in styling before that Mm. so I think there are like new courses but yet again maybe look like the quality of that diversity is not always yeah facilitated so strongly I'm definitely quite skeptical sometimes of these courses for the money that people pay to get a bachelor's and yeah are they really getting the quality that they need to but that's not really um what we're here to discuss today um but I guess on that um just (laughs) sorry we definitely went down the diverse courses angle as opposed to the diverse backgrounds angle. Yeah, no, but I think the reason why we're talking about diverse interests definitely comes in here because you were kind of recalling moments where you've brought up perspectives that you were interested in, informed by your heritage, mm. where then it was sort of brushed aside to an extent by the lecturer because that wasn't really their subject interest and also not their field of expertise. And... As much as I sympathise with lecturers who obviously, you know, they can't be expected to know everything about everything, there is something about that like, you shouldn't you shouldn't be remembering that moment, like your lecturer who you respected brushing aside a question that you had that was probably quite intelligent. Yeah, I think this all kind of circles back to sometimes the experiences of POCs within academia. Mm. There's actually a book called Taking Up Space and it's by two well, Cambridge graduates, Chelsea Quay and Ori Ogunbiyi. And they talk about their, their experiences of being like one of very few people of colour or black women in the university. And I think what I quite like about what I've read about the book so far is that it it really touches on the the whole scope of that experience from like how it can feel to be a person who has come from a space when you're not obvious, when you're not constantly the only one of you Mm-mm. and some of the sort of microaggressive experiences that can come with that and the weights that can come with that even when when you when you want to talk on a uh, a subject that might connect to your to your blackness you might be seen as a spokesperson Mm. Um, (laughs) in the class Mm. or you know what I mean etc so yeah connecting back to what you were talking about before uh, we've when I was in university I remember taking a creative writing course which I in my third year which I was super excited about doing I remember I had my tutor for this course and I will tell you a tiny bit about his background and he was like an Oxford graduate nice man but I could never a lot of my stories were to do with this whole dual Nigerian British identity mm. that I have and I'm around quite constantly mm. um and his feedback to my stories was always like like you did that well oh that was okay oh that was nice mm. it it was quite a weird experience for me just because I mean we had this whole procedure that we used to do in uh, in the classes where we would obviously share all our work and then everyone would give feedback. The people in the class, their feedback would always be very like detailed and it would always somehow let me know that they were reading the things that I gave. And so it was always quite weird whenever I'd, I'd go to him and I'd be like, okay, so what did you think? And he'd be like, mm, this was good. 
it obviously came from a place where he 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 definitely enjoyed a certain type of story any sort of mad like frank kafka weird stuff he was all over Mm. (laughs) um but like my tradition was very like following other african writers so even if in my um write-ups about why i'd written stuff i'd always be like you know i'm following the style of chino Chebi and it's mm. all supposed to be based on oral like narratives and that sort of thing mm. um and the use of like Igbo words is to connect back to etc etc at the very end of the course we were supposed to get one-to-one which he had with everyone in like a pub which like you know kind of tells you a tiny bit about him mm-hmm. but in this pub I remember being like okay so you're always telling me I do like it's a like a nice story what, showdown what is <laughs> showdown I was like what is it that you want for it to be a good story and he just couldn't really tell me sadly I don't think this is a very like unique experience but I feel like when you're doing stuff and people don't seem to be able to understand where you're coming from and I think his flat responses I feel like that came from a place of like not actually getting it yeah I feel like this is an amazing story for this radio show a bit unfortunate for your like <laughs> because I think it's very analogous to lots of similar issues around not having enough of different types of voices to be there to educate or support different people at university. It's the fact that there was one creative writing course offered that you could take and it was taught by this particular profile of a person that if you had had a choice of like speaking to a different type of lecturer maybe like I've heard very like similar stories about, for example, people going to counselling and not having, you know, the right type of counsellor for them who doesn't understand their background, etc. Yeah, definitely. I feel like sometimes when there is like not the cultural understanding, yeah, uh, it can be quite hard for institutions to know what to not to make of certain things. To be very honest with you, yeah. The re-release of this episode is brought to you by Picador and the release of a new book called I Heard What You Said by Geoffrey Boache. Before Geoffrey was a black teacher, he was a black student, which means he has spent a lifetime navigating places of learning that are white by default. Since training to teach, he has often been the only black teacher at school, at times seen as a role model at others a source of curiosity. Boaches is a journey of exploration. In the groundbreaking I Heard What You Said, he recounts how it feels to be on the margins of the British education system. Through a series of eye-opening encounters based on the often challenging and sometimes outrageous things people have said to him or about him, Boache reflects on what he has found out about the habits, presumptions, silences and distortions that black students and teachers experience and which underpin British education. Thought-provoking, witty and completely unafraid to call out some of the most pressing issues of our times, Boache offers sharp analysis, lively prose and a searing vision for how we can dismantle racism in the classroom and do better by all our students in the future. Originally from Brixton in London, Geoffrey has taught secondary English for 15 years. He is the author of 
Hold tight, black masculinity, millennials, and the meaning of crime. Blacklisted, black British culture explored. What is masculinity? Why does it matter? And other big questions. And musical truth, a musical history of modern black Britain. I Heard What You Said by Geoffrey Boache is out now. So please go and get your hands on a copy, preferably at a local bookshop. Okay, so we have our guests with us today, the lovely Kareem from Goldsmiths University. Yes, for another few weeks. <laughs> oh, graduation is, is nice. Yeah, not, not far off the last stretch. How do you feel? Uh, won it over, relieved. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the reason why we have you on the show today is to um, talk to us a little bit about the Goldsmith anti-racism movement. Yep. Yeah, things have been going down at your university, <laughs> haven't they? Yeah, it's been quite intense. Okay, so we know a little bit about it, but for our listeners who maybe don't, can you run us down the whole time frame? So wow. what, what, what spurred uh, the protests? Right, um, Goldsmiths, is very well known as being a liberal university, very progressive, um, even radical um, in comparison to the more established universities in London, even more radical than something like SOAS, which is seen as being a bit of a hub of a revolution, so to speak, when you're there. So it attracts a lot of uh, politically minded people. They're very proud of having a, a high ethnic minority student body at the university. And that's why a lot of uh, people of colour go, because they sort of see the university, they see what it stands for, and they think it's one of those places where it's a bit of a safe space for them. And I guess that, with regards to the occupation, the, the kick-off was an election uh, for, a student, yeah, for a student union position, for a sabbatical officer. And uh, there was a woman, an international student from Pakistan, who was uh, running for one of the officers, and so there's posters everywhere, there's banners, there's um, videos being made online. And this uh, woman had her posters and her banners uh, vandalised with uh, racist uh, remarks. One of the main ones being, um, it's like, vote for her. her. And uh, they changed the V to the W to make fun of her accent. There was a huge uproar from her friends and her team, and then that kind of snowballed. But what happened was that led to the occupation was the absolute lack of action and care from the university, from the union and from the university. They really wanted to brush it under the carpet. They didn't care. They didn't want to look at uh, videos. They didn't want to, uh, the CCTV, they didn't want to investigate it. So what that did was it brought together a lot of different campaigning groups from the university together. Uh, and formed itself in a protest that went to Deptford Town Hall, which is um, now part of the campus of Goldsmiths. So Deptford Town Hall is a bit further down uh, New Cross Road on the, uh, in the area. And it has been part of the university since the late 90s, I think, when Goldsmiths bought it to be part of the campus. And a big part of the deal to buy it was that Deptford Town Hall was going to be incorporated into the local community as well, not just for the university because uh, the university like really takes up a lot of space in in New Cross like it is like this main hub and the Deptford Town Hall has basically just been the really big posh offices of the senior management team and of the Goldsmiths University 
so the protest went in there the idea that it's open to the community is a lie because you can't book the room if you're from the community or anything mm-hmm. like that um and so the protest happened everyone who came together the palestine society because one of our alumni had just been arrested um in a dawn raid in the west bank and had uh, had been held in administrative detention without any law access to lawyer or family um and he was a very prominent uh, member of the uh, alumni from Goldsmiths. And he was also the recipient of a Goldsmiths uh, Palestine scholarship uh, that they just had just rescinded uh, without informing anybody that had been going on for 10 years. There were um, justice for cleaners and justice for workers um, campaign groups who want to bring in in-house all outsourced um, staff as finding outsourcing is like one of the most racist kind of forms of uh, uh, structural forms of racism that like institutions have and a lot of the community court sort of groups of the safe spaces of people of color that were meeting at the union so they came together and had a protest and that led to uh, them f- going further into the town hall and occupying the main council chamber and some other rooms and then it was lockdown. and how long did the occupation last four and a half months wow. which I mean, there, there are various reasons why it lasted four and a half months, mainly because Goldsmiths didn't want to do anything about what the demands were of the, of the students. Most occupations are raves, and it's usually uh, usually white-led. And this was the first occupation of a higher education institution that we know of in the world, led by people of colour. So on this topic of like Goldsmiths not really wanting to meet the demands of the occupation mm. or to actually deal with some of the issues that you were presenting to them what sort of reasons were you guys getting for basically their inaction well there was there was no reason given they were basically they kind of they ignored us at first so the they put Deptford Town Hall on lockdown Uh, no one was allowed in or out they locked the fire doors um, for two days and nights straight Uh, they closed the toilets and uh, they hired in uh, extra security who like, really roughed up the early occupiers and a lot of these were vulnerable like people with disabilities as well and like uh, mental health issues and uh, they like some of those people never managed to make it back to the occupation because it was so full on those first couple of nights but then we garnered so much social media support and so much uh, support around the world through the internet that they sort of called off the dog so to speak a little bit and then they relaxed the rules of engagement in terms of with the occupation they took off the main security this was probably over the course of a week to 10 days Mm -hmm. like as a total kind Mm. of like uh the escalation um but there was never any other than the the very typical uh reaction of we are very sympathetic to the the demands of the occupiers um but you know it's a space that we need to teach in and it's a space that we need to do this and we asked them to like end the occupation uh, we will address, we care about racism and we, we want to address all of these things. It replicated so many different uh, power dynamics in society. A manifesto was put together yeah. of all of the demands, was 12 demands, and was sent to uh, uh, the senior management team, Goldsmiths, and it took like a couple of months for the reply. I think they were really just waiting for it to collapse. They, yeah. were, they were really waiting for us to get tired, but what they didn't realise was that we as a, a, a body of occupiers, we had no choice. 
Um, so can you unpack a little bit some of the key demands that you make? Some of the demands that I've read about um, touch on really shocking institutional practices. Yeah, so um, I mentioned the, the Palestinian student um, earlier on. That was um, that was that was already that was kind of uh, um, an early uh, an early part of the manifesto to reinstate the scholarships and to get some kind of uh, support from the university for Hafiz Omar and the justice for workers and cleaners were in there straight away and that was that's obviously one of the most institutionally racist things that an institution can do of outsourcing to predominantly BME uh, workers with no job security the the the, the, out, the kind of idea of outsourcing and even late, a lot later on we had negotiations the look on some people's faces when you explain why outsourcing is bad there is absolutely no reason that an established university that has been there for what 60 years or so and is not going anywhere. It owns half of New Cross. Why do you need to outsource um, staff and have them on temporary contracts? These are people that like have families and live and work. And a lot of the security guards didn't realise that was part of the manifesto. So towards the end, when they heard about this, their, some of their attitudes who had been maybe like a little bit weary of us really changed. So one of the demands is um, instead of having people on unstable and unpredictable contract hours and and uh, job insecurity, yeah. having them part of the yeah. permanent yeah, bring in them in house. house. Yeah, bring them in yeah. house uh, because there's already a justice for cleaners campaign that was quite successful, mm -hmm. and then the justice for workers was uh, it was an extension of that. Then there was a registration software called Seats. One of the issues that came about or that we became more aware of, I certainly became more aware of when the occupation started, was the amount of dropouts of uh, people of colour and of inter international students from Goldsmiths. So the Home Office uh, obviously requires certain things off higher education institutions. Goldsmiths had bought, had spent a lot of money on this uh, registration kind of software to, um, with the only justification of making it easier for... Um, lecturers to take the register and this information was giving the home office and their partners information on how often the student uh, the students were at, uh, in campus on campus where on campus they were going what they were taking out from the library so it's an electronic system basically mm. and it give it's giving a lot of pressure onto these international students who are then they receive letters if they miss classes and so the occupation had people from those different kind of uh, from those different departments focusing on negotiating or saying what they need with those demands. But then in a more general sense, we knew that there had been so many. We actually put out a call for people to send through their uh, racist uh, incidents. And it became really clear that at all levels of the university, um, the staff needed training. So we put in one of the demands for uh, mandatory anti-racist training um, mm. and a review of the hate crime and complaints system, which until recently f kind of forced a victim to confront the accuser very early on in, a, in, a, in like taking a complaint to the next level. And if you go on to, for anyone who wants to know more about the, the webs uh, for the occupation, if you go on to Gold, Goldsmith's anti-racist action on Facebook or on Twitter, there are a lot of links to the manifesto and to the history of what has happened. So you can find out more details of this kind of examples of racism that were given by, um, by students at Goldsmith's. And then the last one was 
um, a very, <laughs> very. Uh, I always thought. It was, I mean, I thought it was great, but it was, it was very linked to like the roads must fall um, kind of campaign, where Deptford Town Hall has um, naval officers on the outside of it, and these are naval officers that are deeply entrenched in the the transportation and kidnapping of Africans to take into uh, the Caribbean. And they're there to be worshipped because Deptford uh, and New Cross have a huge history of the docks and a lot of the slave ships were coming in and out of there. Um, so we wanted them down as a, as a manifesto. But actually that kind, of, uh, that kind of changed into the real acknowledgement from the university of what those people represent, who they are, uh, what they've done and there is one of the if you forward on I think the final agreement is that there's going to be like plaques on the floor to tell people in the area what is going what who those people are and why they were there and then why were they canonized so they're planning on putting those plaques yeah in. yeah and I actually just searched last night kind of totally randomly and um, it's on the website already saying oh, that like these are the people on Deptford Town Hall oh, okay. so were all of your demands met then all of the demands were in the very end were met to certain points at least to at least to continue the work uh which was always going to have to happen like we we were all very aware that number one we don't trust the institution um why would you there's no reason um but the actions were met we sorry we were already aware that this movement had to continue and I think that one of the things that the the movement did was it really brought together a lot of different political struggles that had been going on at the university quite kind of away from each other and I found as as an organizer I found that people at Goldsmiths they kind of just thought it had already been done so a lot of people who were considering themselves like leftists or however they want to identify just kind of thought they didn't have to do anything because they were at Goldsmiths and everything was fine um, I had a question about the SEAT software. Mm -hmm. um, do you know how broadly it's been implemented across different universities? I believe it's not, basically, which is one of the reasons that right. we really campaigned for it. It was it would only it was only rolled out into one department at that time. So our kind of success in terms of meeting demands was that it was not extended to any other department, hmm. so which it was going to be. Right. It was going to be rolled out across the whole of the university. So that's been stopped uh, pending a review. So that the hate crime and uh, complaints procedure, like there's now a working group to change that depending yeah. on like how the experiences of people. But we have to keep pushing them. Uh, the Palestinian scholarships were reinstated to start again next year. But we have to also keep up that they don't rescind that again. Sure. Yeah. Know? And one uh, thing that you had been telling me about the seats um, software was that um, on the face of it, it does seem like quite a convenient thing. But you were explaining how um, it goes up and beyond what is required. Yeah. And the lot and the typical of what happened in the occupation in that we were doing the labour for yeah. Goldsmiths, so we had these students doing like intense research about home office requirements because you know we're not stupid we understand that like they're not going to be able to function as a university if they don't adhere to like certain governmental rules right but you know they went into like they gave them alternatives they were like you could have used this software that kind of just does the bare minimum but you've chosen to do this one why and why have you spent so much money on it mm. you know why this software and i don't think we really could we never really got to the bottom of why that was chosen and why by a university that has these kind of principles 
And it was, you know, when we were discussing it with the university, we were tying it into the hostile environment that was created by the toy pie. Mm. You know, and when you sort of brought that up with these liberal, like, I've nothing to do with the hostile environment. I'm totally against it. You know, it's like, well, you're totally against it, but you're playing into it. Mm. And that was, again, that was a, a current running theme of students that didn't understand why the occupation was going on and uh, uh, staff in that it's just enough to say that you're something rather than to see how these things are implemented. A lot of them didn't, a lot of them didn't get why students gave a damn about the workers. Like, they really didn't understand it. But what they didn't know is that, like, if you are um, second generation uh, with parents who have migrated, these people are your family. Yeah, definitely. You know, you, know the, you have your friends working these jobs. Like, you know what it's like and you can see it. And then you understand... Even if you've not had that experience, you see the injustice of it and like how ridiculous it is that these people don't have like a, a permanent job. So um, with the seat software, that was one of the things that they just didn't get because they've not had uh, family or friends or themselves being put under pressure and having this extra weight on you to have to be there all the time. I'm ill. I have to go in. Because if I don't go in, I'm going to get like a, a letter. You've already had yeah. to register at a police station if you're an international student. Um, so it's just this constant monitoring and above and beyond. And I, we'd had like a lot of people drop out. And there's even like people take their own lives over the course of years. You know, people just that have the way that this kind of monitoring and pressure affects people's mental health. Like they have no, they have no understanding or comprehension of what this kind of thing can do to people mm. on the topic of students filling in for the university because yeah. i read somewhere that at first when you guys reported the hate crime mm. and etc one of the answers that you were given by the university is that they were kind of incapable of investigating in into it or like yeah. doing anything about it yeah. and yet again with your demands at first I, th I think the university said they didn't understand them no so it's it seems like the students had to fill in quite a heavy gap and getting the universities to actually understand that I've been, to it almost. I think personally, the I'm really cynical. So there's an element of me is like, they knew exactly what was going on and they knew exactly what was happening, but they just didn't think it was going to last. Like, mm. I can't... The lack of contact and the lack of compromise by the university and what they expected from a student-led occupation to be was unlike anything they'd ever experienced before. This space was like a constant place of nurture, learning, like people going there to work. We had people who had like really unstable living situations, being able to come in, get advice from people who'd been there at the university longer. Uh, you had constant research going on. No, it wasn't a party place. Yeah. You know, like... There might have been music on, but it was like constant work and real community that, that we hadn't found anywhere else. The amount of labour that was going on, but and you, you said like, you know, they said they were incapable of it. In fairness to them, they probably don't understand because most of the people involved have come from these kind of backgrounds where they are not, they are not put in situations because of their identity. And I think that, do you think that's problematic in itself then? Look, it is. I'm, I'm really not an identity politics kind of person. Like, I, I really think that it reduces things a bit too much. But I do think that representation is really important when you base your whole kind of ethos on the idea that like 
everyone is welcome. And then surprise, surprise, all people, all workers of color are treated like absolute dirt mm. and have no security yet. You know, like decolonize the curriculum, like is one of Goldsmith's real buzzwords, right? That doesn't happen. You know, like you, the idea of you going outside of Europe for some of your courses, it's ridiculous. Like one, and mate, it wasn't even brought up in the occupation. One friend was in a music class and the music uh, lecturer referred to like some African music as like bongo bongo music or like jungle music or something like this. And they couldn't, like, you know, people just sort of looking at each other going, did that just happen? Um, a really respected lecturer using the N-word because and her justification was that she's Irish, she can say it, you know. Like mm. the, the, this would this was not happening from the the people who were in power were not representative of the student body. What I almost find fascinating though mm. is that within the actual town hall centre, mm. you guys were having workshops. Yes. So despite the fact that you're all kind of the sort of people fighting for Palestine, yeah. workers' rights, mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure the POC body yeah. was there yeah you guys all managed to understand that you're working together but then there were still like maybe differences amongst you guys i think there are a lot of you know as an older more like mature student as well like a lot of these younger students are really still finding their way as to why they believe what they believe like why why is something away from something that they're very aware of why is something else for example justice vocals why is that important why is palestinian issue uh, important why why do we need more funding for Black History Month, for example? Mm. Um, but because it wasn't a party place, that, and it was a place that was predominantly led by young women of colour and non-binary folks, it was a space that was really strong in its, like, this is how we do things, and we talk about these issues, and we're going to explain to you why this is right and this is wrong. So one of the misconceptions was that, like, white people weren't allowed in the occupation. Mm. You know, because they kind of got the joke term, not joke term, but white allies who were working. But they were the, the the people who were in there were all working together. If you weren't respectful of what the rules of uh, the occupation were, you know, when you came in, it was like before you enter the occupation, please read this. Yeah. You know, it's like an Audrey Lord quote. There were these things about like, take care of yourself. Yeah, but I still find it fascinating how you guys seem to understand that there was a need for, for that, even in this space, which is pushing for one singular mm. or not one singular kind of many but yeah. similar um effects you guys seem to understand that there was a need for that mm. and you guys have limited uh, resources limited funds uh, there, there are so many limitations yeah. and then you compare that to the university mm. where you're working with way more funds mm. experts you send them your demands and you guys have to then jump in to explain to them yeah, to yeah. you have to labor <laughs> it, you know it's yeah. it's very strange talking about it now because all these kind of, you it was so long like when you talk when you think about how long it was like there were people there was a baby born like there was a the, like it started one of the occupiers was pregnant and then like the baby is like four months old by the time the occupation ends and is like being reared in this like space of struggle one of the reasons was that you had young passionate angry amazing intelligent young people um, like being like a leading force of it very very closely surrounded by older more more experienced organizers who they're you know maybe in their mid-20s to late 20s then you had people like in the early 30s 
mid thirties who have been organizing for a while. Like myself, like, you know, you've been in those spaces before you've seen it kind of happen. You've seen these people come together. So there's this, and then you have like pe people who are lecturers and, and doctors in there. Like one of the amazing women in her speech, she was given an award at the graduation last at the end, at the beginning of the summer. She like, she said, thank you to GARA, which is the acronym of Goldsmiths Anti-Racist Action, um, for teaching me more in like four and a half months than I've learned in like my whole kind of higher education. And like, you know, that that's not, that wasn't just wordplay. That was real. Like we all felt that. I also think that if I look back to when I was maybe an undergrad and the way that politics was then, like this wouldn't have happened and it wouldn't have been as you, as you said, like how amazing everyone kind of came together. I think that politics has moved on so much and the internet has also changed anything, right? Like you yeah. can, you can say a phrase and then like the next day someone is like kind of clued up because they've gone and mm. done a few search searches the night before. I feel like it's, it's kind of a real privilege to have you on the show as somebody who was really on the ground. And I just wondered if there was anything that you could potentially sort of share from your experience through the occupation and also just your own experience of university life that you might want to share to people who might be in university now or mm. going to university. Like be yourself and be comfortable. Look for your people. Look for if you've got mutual, if you've got friends there, see what they're involved. Look at the societies, see what the union's like. You know, when, when someone complain when one of your mates complains about something that the institution does, if we're talking very quite specifically about like institutional racism or oppression, uh, or sexism, uh, misogyny, if something happens to you, like don't don't be quiet. You need to be really on it. And I think that people just have to open their eyes. Look at what you're being taught. Uh, look at the the power dynamics going on. Look at the look at the institution and what they actually work. Look at the institution, how they function, how representative is it? You should always question everything that you know. So uh, anyone of any background, I think that people are probably really choosing not to take part in politics now. Like before, you can maybe get away with a little bit of ignorance, but I think now it's a real, it's even more than ever a political decision to not engage, and. It's a political decision from other students at the Goldsmiths not to engage in the occupation. It's a political decision to go to a certain university. It's a political decision to study a certain thing. It's a political decision to think, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Like It's a, it's a political decision to say, I want to be a millionaire. These ideas have a whole basis of structure linked to them. And then often it's going to be um, structural oppression of somebody to get you to where you want to be and it doesn't mean you shouldn't have ambition it doesn't mean that you shouldn't try and do something as well but like you shouldn't be treading on people to get there what sort of things do you think institutions should be doing so they can be more critical within themselves and it doesn't have to be all about students yeah drawing that's... the attention to the institutions this is one of the real things about goldsmiths everyone expected better and one of the reasons it happened one of the reasons that it happened and one of the reasons that institutions have been able to get away with it is that I think the standards have risen for people of colour and marginalised communities. They know they know their rights. They're seeing uh, even more uh, disparity in society and they're, they're seeing it reflected in the university. Um, what can institutions do um, rather than just say buzzwords like decolonize your curriculum or like we have a, a black attainment gap or we have like a diverse alumni um, and we have lots of international students etc etc 
they need to put the money where the mouth is and they need to invest in anti-racist training they need to invest and really understand when they put up jobs for offer for example a counselor like a counselor at goldsmiths their the job uh, description had nothing about like their back the counselor's background or about languages or something like that so at goldsmiths you had people going to a counselor and a counselor saying i just think that you are not compatible with your muslim family and that you should leave home i think that your culture does not fit in with the british culture and that you're always going to have this problem um i can't understand your accent and you don't speak english well enough and these these are things that were said like maybe i'm paraphrasing but these were said to students yeah and you got this through testimonials didn't yeah, you? yeah that's yeah. right so if one of the things that we changed was that um, a job for a counsellor had to be then like have an amended job description, talk about languages preferred to speak, you know. And then also, where is it being advertised? It's got to be advertised in places that people from all different parts of society can see. Institutions really have to be very self-critical. Um, well... Karim, thank you so much for coming on the yeah, show. It really Cheers, for has been me. so interesting to get some insight into what really happened and the ongoing work that you guys are actually doing. So can you just remind us and the listeners, if we want to keep up with and support the movement, where should we go and look at? Um, you can do a Google search on Goldsmith's anti-racist uh, action, but we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and it's still constantly being updated. Garrett is not going anywhere. Um, it, it will it will continue in different forms. Amazing, thank so, you. Thank you. Mm. There's one thing that I want to kind of uh, unpack and address a bit more that's come out of the conversation with Kareem, which is this thing about. Um, decolonizing the curriculum which is a phrase that is um being kind of uh repeated um across different universities as as a, an initiative or an aim that they're trying to do and there's lots of articles out there um about also like protests from student bodies regarding this um but yeah i thought it might be good if we just unpack what it actually means where it comes from and some of the uh the kind of criticism and trickiness around it what i kind of understand by decolonizing uh, the curriculum is that it's supposed to be about removing it away from um, a colonial lens and a sort of like Eurocentric uh, focus. So uh, that would obviously be through teaching um, Western aspects of history as just history. Mm. Um, yeah, that's through, yeah through like the sort of instatement of the canon when it's clearly like. A canon that was formed by a certain culture. <laughs> um, yeah, so decolonizing education has to do with moving past that. Yeah, I, I suppose that's you touched on the, the two sides of it. One is sort of more explicitly teaching about colonial history in some ways, and not kind of washing over these things. And um, and then on the other side is actually about like a kind of metaphorical um, colonization of the texts that we read and the examples that we learn about. Um, 
apparently there was been some really weird like like fault basically fake news saying that oh you know like so our students are asking to remove white philosophers like Plato and Kant from their reading lists and replace them with um, <laughs> black thinkers I mean obviously that is not at all the point of of decolonizing a curriculum but more calling out bias and skewing of ideas by not including a more broader range of um, thinkers and and books, um, so that you know, not that re- the reading our reading lists are not ninety percent written by um, white men. I was reading this article, on, and they kind of frame this thing of like, if you if you only offer um, a white male dominated reading list, um, then we are also teaching our students wrong lessons about who is the intellectual authority and deserves our attention. Yeah. Um, that's something that's quite potent because one of the criticisms of the discussions around decolonizing a curriculum is that um, it only applies to certain subjects. Hmm. Um, so you can see how maybe in literature it's it's or like history perhaps. Can we say that about mathematics? Or I feel like if you broaden the idea of um, this idea to include um, queer voices as well, I feel like is an overall kind of question regarding who are the people who um, whose work we are studying. I'd also add that that comes down to categorization as well. Because I think to take someone like Audre Lorde, if the only space that you find Audre Lorde's writing is on a feminist course, mm. um, and you can't find her writing on a political course, it's kind of like an algorithmic mm. way of consume of educating as well Mm. do you see what I mean because I think what universities sometimes do could do better is when they when they attempt to include it's how they also weave in these people Uh, if they're only to be seen on a course that is about queer studies you're only going to get people who are uh, obviously attuned with that yeah reading it yeah it's like Uh, preaching to the choir kind of thing yeah definitely to a degree um, yeah, it's almost like calling for a kind of uh, quite radical, um, not an interdisciplinarian approach, but, you know, because obviously when you go to university, you are meant to be starting to specialise in a subject. When you're taking a BA degree, I think you're just, you're allowed to dip and dive into certain modules. I think if you're only ever including the voices of, writers who have post-colonial influences mm. in a post-colonial course yeah then it limits the access to it mm. i feel like um our course at manchester was quite good in some ways i remember there was definitely a course where um we studied uh, frankenstein mm. do you remember this one where like frankenstein was used as a text to kind of explore all these different theories like critical theories so that we read it through a post-colonial through a feminist through a post-industrial through like all these different ways of reading that text and i thought that that was actually and that was in first year wasn't it Mm. and i thought that was a really good um way of kind of making sure that everyone sort of approached um the topic yeah and i think that's definitely brilliant but then that's still the treatment of like still quite classic you know what i mean an english yeah, classical sure. test sure.
So what else should universities be teaching? So one thing... <laughs> Such I, a big question. No. Well, uh, one thing I really wish that I learned at university was how to deal and with tax. Because <laughs> um, I'm a freelancer and I work for myself. You know, amongst a lot of friends and people I know who are also freelancers, I mean, most of us who have got High, you know, higher education, university degrees were never really taught how to um, to fill in a HMRC form and keep on top of tax. Uh, I completely agree with that, but just thinking back, I kind of feel like I had enough trouble getting through the reading list on time <laughs> to like learn about tax as well. I don't know if I would have been able to fit that in. But joking aside, I think it's a really it's an interesting one because we go in quite specific talking about like finance and tax. But the sort of broader scope of that point, I think, is about how well universities generally prepare students for graduation. Because I think there's lots of, I hear lots of complaints from students graduating from like, especially arts degrees. They just feel they weren't properly prepared about how to enter the workforce and how to look for a job or just a sort of kind of like career preparation and I think sort of the finance side of things falls under that to a certain degree. When you leave when you graduate and you sort of um, are trying to enter the job market like I know no one virtually who kind of <laughs> Like, unless they had, like, um, a setup beforehand who graduated and was in, like, proper employment. Um, lots of people who I know interned. And interning can sometimes be expensive, oddly enough. Um, I think it's getting better now. But, you know, there can be a period of, like, unemployment, looking for, for opportunities and etc. And I think... Um, yeah, if if you're be if you're a good budgeter, you're kind of better prepared for that period. Yeah, um, looping back onto the thing of people coming from diverse backgrounds and diverse home situations, I feel like there's there is def it's definitely a real thing that people come from different economic and home situations where some people will have had some of these discussions at in a in a kind of domestic home context about like how to think about money and structural spending and prepare for entering the workforce whereas some will not have had those conversations and obviously you know I almost feel like there should be courses about the about money and budgeting in school to an, a certain degree like even before university yeah how much do we expect from from schools and unis but I definitely feel like you know if you wrap the money thing under the career thing uh there's definitely a space for that in university one of the reasons uh why you know particularly now it would be good for universities to sort of like or like education systems in general to sort of incorporate that is just because it's probably more expensive than ever to actually um be someone who takes who you know takes up loan to have a bachelor's degree mm. 
another cool thing I discovered in researching for the show is an organization called New Contemporaries. Um, they've been going since 1949 um, and they showcase art and you can buy art through them. And um, in speaking to some artist friends, they, they've kind of educated me and telling me that this um, is a really, really important event on the, the year's calendar for artists and has been um, the first exhibition for many artists who are now um, very sort of uh, successful or revered. Um, and what's really interesting about their selection process um, is that um, the people who are selecting work to be exhibited that year, they're selecting the work without seeing any information about the artist whatsoever. So no CV, no other details, and they are selecting the work based on the work's merit um, in its own merits. Um, and and that just that just seems like... A really interesting sort of way to go about things um yeah it's definitely like a step closer to trying to objectively you mm -hmm. know what i mean i'm sure there's there's still going to be some subjectivity there but it's definitely um like quite a strong attempt to like make art and the the acquirement of art democratic mm. um yeah and also since uh 2014 um They've also kind of opened up the annual call to artists participating on non-degree awarding programs. So you don't have to have gone to uh, an art school to be able to even submit. Um, and also, like, if, you know, um, they introduce exhibition fees to help to support artists. And there's also more mentoring and stuff. And, yeah, I think it was just quite cool to discover things like the Alternative Graduate Show and also this New Contemporary, which is a which is, is a much older organisation. But just the, the thought that there is definitely more um, alternatives out there than maybe what, I don't know, I feel like what, sometimes could have been a homogenous university experience might lead you to think that that's what the world is like mm. which or the workplace which it doesn't have to be yeah do you think that's fair to say mm. um yeah and i think sometimes the limitations with uh courses and how work can be received um can lead to frustration and um people are slowly starting to seek other ways of having their work credited. Uh, one example of this is the Alternative Graduate Show, which happened a few weeks ago now. Mm -hmm. For those uh, who are listening who don't know what that is, that is an arts show, and it was hosted by um, Babes. Yeah. And what that basically aims to do is to spotlight the work of people who are black, who are femmes, who are non-binary, who are queer, and their work, just because so often, you know, there hasn't always been the freedom to um, express themselves mm. um, or to, like, give the right legitimacy to their work in institutional frameworks. Um, and I actually have a quote here from... Kai Azai Jamal, who was actually at our Tate event last week. He, he was one of the speakers. Um, and they say, while studying, I was conflicted in thinking that my work had to be visibly Afrocentric and laced in political message and personal truth, 
that my work should act as a rebel against my peers and what came out of their mouths to endure the labour of educating those around me, including tutors, and overall to create something that was all of that, yet still digestible for a gaze centred by whiteness and for an audience my work wasn't for. Yeah. Um, and we went la. We both went to the show. Yeah. Um, and it was amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, super high quality stuff. Though it was a, a collection of work that was uh, put because it was made by people who have a similar, and I would underline similar, um, experience none of the work was the same none mm. of the messages were the same um yeah and everything was equally as strong mm. whereas i feel sometimes when um people outside of those communities curate things they're often trying to um give you a divert like a, a guide mm. do you see what i'm saying mm. and so what you you tend to see is like a narrative like a quite a like um easy to digest narrative mm. about people who come from those backgrounds yeah sort of like a, a separate curatorial agenda almost yeah definitely mm. We want to say thanks to those who have given us their thoughts on this topic, including our guest Kareem Samara. Once again, you can find out more and follow what Gara, Goldsmith Anti-Racist Action, are doing on social media. Please do. Thank you again for tuning in to Third Waves. Stay tuned online at Third Magazine on Instagram. That's third with three eyes. <laughs>